Thank you, Sandy. Morning, church. We are continuing with our series through the life of David, covering two chapters this morning, the last chapter of 1 Samuel and the first chapter of 2 Samuel. And let's, as we go there this morning, let's pray again and ask for the Spirit's help as we look together at His Word. God, we long for childlike hearts that hear sincerely and quickly obey. We want childlike hearts that understand your good heart and your powerful plans in our lives. We thank you for your word that sheds light on our life and circumstances. Holy Spirit, there is a reason that these two chapters are in your word. We want to accurately divide your word. We want to understand it correctly. We want to know the burden that you have for us in this text. We pray that you would lift up Christ for us. We look to him now and pray in his name. Amen. Here's my main idea this morning. Life is brief. Death is certain. So trust the heart and plans of God. Life is brief. Death is certain. So trust the heart and plans of God. We are tempted to assume a long life and to ignore death. This passage calls us exactly to the opposite. It urges us to trust God's good heart toward us, no matter the plans that he permits or brings into our life. This passage summons us to conform our thoughts and emotions and decisions to eternity, to the reality that God exists outside of time and creation. This text beckons us, it calls us, it begs us to see life from God's perspective. And to understand that when God brings difficult things into our lives, he calls on us to trust his good heart toward us and to trust his powerful plans in our midst. You could think of this a bit as a, a summary of where we've been over the last so many chapters, a summary of Saul's life that's captured in his death. You see, God brought gracious discipline to King Saul, but Saul rebelled against God's work. Instead of turning to God, Saul dug in, and his life was marked by resistance and rejection and rebellion towards God's heart and towards God's plans. Therefore, Saul's life was not the happier for it. His life was filled with lonely isolation and bitter anger and shivering despair. Saul was consumed by what God took away from him. And Saul was driven by what God would not provide. And unless Saul turned in those agonizing moments on that mountain before he died, this is the state of Saul's heart when he passes into God's presence. But then in David and Jonathan, we have a contrast. Not a perfect one because David's lack of faithfulness has been on display over the last few weeks. 
But we have seen a sinful David turn to the Lord. And we will continue as we press into this story to see a sinful David turn to the Lord. David and Jonathan trust the heart and plans of God. Not perfectly, but their trust is expressed throughout their lives and in the Psalms in desperate prayers for help. Their trust in God is expressed through patiently waiting on Him to bring relief and rescue in His timing. Their trust looks like accepting the difficult plans that God brings with quiet, prayerful hearts. The good heart of God brought Saul, David, and Jonathan difficult plans, legitimately difficult plans. And they responded to those plans differently. I know that God's good heart has brought difficult plans right through your front door. And the question for us this morning is, will we trust Him? Life is brief, death is certain, so trust the heart and plans of God. We're going to take this story in four scenes, and then we're going to think together about two points of application. Scene one, the rebel king is dead. 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 6. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. This conflict has been rising like a stormy tide since the beginning of chapter 27. And now the Philistine army that had gathered in the city of Aphek marches 50 miles and attacks Israel on Mount Gilboa. And the Israelites are quickly overwhelmed by this Philistine army. In the thick of fighting where he always was, Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, courageous as ever, falls to a Philistine sword along with two of his brothers. He was a loyal friend to David. He was a loyal leader of his people. And he was a loyal son to his father. And this makes me wonder, in between the lines of the text, what Saul may have been thinking as he watches his sons die by the Philistine sword. Is there any part of Saul in those moments who recognizes his own sin? Is there any part of Saul that experiences genuine godly sorrow over what his sin has cost his family and his nation? We don't know. Look at verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his sword, his own sword, and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men or his bodyguard, on that same day together." The Philistine archers have done their job and Saul is mortally wounded. And he's battled long enough. He's defended his people for long enough that he understands what the enemy Philistines will do to him if they find him still alive. And so he requests the armor bearer finish the job. But the armor bearer respects the king, respects the fact that this king has been anointed by God for this role. He loves the king and so he fears greatly to do this. And so Saul does it himself. And then his armor bearer, respecting his king, follows suit. And so on one day, Israel loses their king and his armor bearer. 
They lose three of the king's sons, including the crown prince, Jonathan, and they lose and their army is routed. Now, here's how 1 Chronicles chapter 10 instructs us to understand the death of Saul, because there's not much in 1 Samuel 31 that explains the why or what's happening behind. We know that from what's happened previously, and then when we get to 1 Chronicles 10, the chronicler tells us how we should understand Saul's death. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. It is not for one moment of disobedience that Saul dies on Mount Gilboa. It is for a lifetime of rejection and rebellion against the Lord, a persistent refusal to acknowledge God as God and to submit and accept and to lean into what God has planned. And so Saul is put to death by God for his sin, and the Philistines are the instrument in God's hand that makes this happen. Saul received payment for his sins in his generation. This is not unlike what happened to the generation of Noah, who receives God's judgment for their sin in their own generation. God has fulfilled his promise to Saul through Samuel that Matt preached for us in 1 Samuel 28. When Saul, afraid of this very battle, goes to find a medium in the land of Israel who will seek the Lord for him. And Samuel says to Saul in that interaction in 1 Samuel 28, 15, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. He's preparing for the Philistine invasion that we just read about. And he says, God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and has become your enemy? Just let the weight of that sink in for a moment. Saul has persisted in his rebellion against the Lord for so long that God just turns the lights out. Can you imagine the terrifying silence, the realization that God is describing himself as your enemy? We must never play games with rebellion. We must always take our sin seriously. When the Spirit convicts us of sin, we must, in the power of the gospel, turn and live. Samuel goes on in verse 17, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the, obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. God does not kill Saul because of that one sin of not wiping out the Amalekites. 
That one sin of not wiping out the Amalekites is what tore the kingdom away from Saul. It was a moment of discipline. This is not how God's king needs to act. But Saul didn't turn. Saul dug in his heels and kept rebelling, and he was not the happier for it. His life was filled with torment and despair and loneliness and anger. God was faithful to his word. The word spoken through Samuel to Saul the day before. And Saul has been judged and in his own lifetime. And friend, in this grim account, we have a foreshadowing of what will be true for all of us if we persist in our rejection against God. It may not come in our lifetime, but at the end of all things, Jesus will judge and he will bring reward or condemnation depending on what we do with the light. Mitchell had us read a section of John 3 before. Here's just verse 18, where Jesus says, whoever believes in him, that is the son of God, in him, in him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in the son of God is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Friends, Jesus is not just a good man. He is a man who threw a gauntlet down and said, you will believe or you will not, but your life and your future will rise and fall in what you do with me. I am the one sent by the Father to reconcile humanity back to the Father. It's me. Come. And in that invitation is also a warning of judgment if we do not come and we do not accept Christ for who he said he was. And listen, Jesus was a rebel king. Saul was a rebel king in that he rebelled against God, but Jesus was also a rebel king. But his rebellion was not his own. Our rebellion, iniquity, and sin was laid upon Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions, not his own. He was crushed for our sin, not his own. That's Isaiah 53. And listen, Saul's sons die with him on that mountain. Not so for Jesus' people. When Jesus, the rebel king, dies on that mountain, his sons and daughters are reconciled to God. Jesus, Jesus' people become heirs of eternal life. We become recipients of eternal blessings and reward. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that for our sake, our rebellion... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. He dies, we get his righteousness. Or Romans 4.24, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, our rebellion, and was raised for our justification, raised that we would be declared righteous, that God would look at us and say, you are righteous, you are holy, you are mine. Jesus was a different kind of rebel king. He died for our rebellion so that we might be transformed from rebels into children. And he rose from the dead with a thunderclap, signaling his victory over sin and death and Satan forever. And we who turn from our sin and our self-righteousness to trust him are caught up in his victory. It becomes ours. Friend, does any of this resonate with you this morning? 
This may be the first time you've heard the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, or you may have heard it your entire life, but does it resonate with your heart? Is God enlarging your heart to feel this this morning? It's what God's Spirit does. He convicts of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Don't ignore the sense in your heart that He is calling you from death to life, out of rejection, into acceptance and trust in Him. This is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And we see in Saul what happens to a person who consistently and persistently and chronically rejects and rebels and turns away from Christ. So turn to Christ this morning and live. In scene two, we, three, we see three different groups of people respond to the rebel king's death. This is verses 7 through 13 of 1 Samuel 31. First, we see the Israelites respond with fear. Look at verse 7 of chapter 31. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled from the Philistines and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and the Philistines came and lived in them. Their king is dead. His sons are dead. The army has been routed. Fear fills the air and the Israelites run from their cities and the Philistines come in and occupy them. The second response is from the Philistines. Look at verses 8 through 10. The next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain, and they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashereth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Sharon. Saul's fear was mistreatment. Saul got it anyway. The bodies of Saul and his sons are mistreated. Messengers are sent throughout the land of Philistia to announce the victory. And Saul's body and the bodies of his sons are hung on this wall of Beth Sharon. The third group that responds is the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. Look at verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Here's a little bit of mercy from the Lord. Jabesh-Gilead were the recipients of one of Saul's first acts as king when the Holy Spirit of God was enabling him and empowering him. The Ammonites had come and attacked Jabesh-Gilead. Saul, empowered by the Spirit, leads the army and defeats the Ammonites and presses them out of Jabesh-Gilead. And here at the end of Saul's life, the men and women of Jabesh-Gilead hear what happens and they send the valiant men at night and they serve Paul, Saul and they honor him and his three sons. Saul did a lot of bad things in his life, but Saul did some good things as well. And I think it's a bit of mercy at the end of his life for us to remember that. We're very prone to dismissing a whole person because they've done some things wrong. But it's okay for us to be critical of the things that one has done wrong and also honor them for the things that they've done right. And I think we have a hint of that here. Now, anytime a leader dies, there is a time when the leader's people feel vulnerable and uncertain, feel alone. What will the future be like? What will the culture be like? What happens next? We feel that when a president transitions or a boss changes. 
It's how the followers of Jesus fell upon his death. What happens next? That's the headspace of Israel right now as they process Saul and Jonathan's death. But God has a new king ready to assume his throne. And that marks the transition between 1 and 2 Samuel. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we now read of David's surprising response. Look at verse verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, the man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. We're back to David. While the Philistines defeat Israel, David has been down defeating the Amalekites. The Amalekites who raided Ziklag, burned it to the ground and kidnapped all the women and children. David sought the Lord. David attacked the Amalekites. God gave him all of his people back and all of their belongings. David's back in Ziklag for two days, and I imagine him and his people working through the rubble to see what's left. And as they're working, as they're wondering about the battle between Philistia and the Israelites, a man arrives. The next day, the third day, a man arrives from Saul's camp. His clothes are torn, and there's dirt on his head. Look at verse 3. David said to him, where did you come from? And he said to David, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And the man answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people had fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside King Saul and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. This story is different from what we read in 1 Samuel 31. We're to understand the narrator, the one who told the story in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, to be the one who's telling the truth. So either this man is lying about what happened, or perhaps Saul's attempt to fall on his own sword was unsuccessful. I think it's more likely that this man comes to the man who stands to gain the most from Saul's death to share the news and perhaps even to embellish the story so that he receives more reward. You know, David has been the recipient of Saul's murder attempts almost 10 times by this point in the story. We expect David to shake the hand of the man who finally ended this. But David's response is surprising. Look at verse 11. David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and, did, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. We have a surprising sense of honor from David. We see his character run deep. 
On the one hand, it's not that surprising because we've seen David show restraint two times before this, when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, when the people around him were saying, this is your opportunity, take it. But David again shows restraint. And all of his restraint is showing patience and demonstrating trust in the plans of God and in the heart of God. Waiting for God to make him king as he promised so many years before when Samuel anoints him. Israel's king is dead. The crown prince Jonathan is dead. Countless Israelites lie dead on the mountains. And so David and his men grieve. But, but grief will not obstruct David's vision of justice. Look at verse 13. David said to the young, men, the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am, the, I, am a so, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And remember, we're living in a time in history at this point when there are no authorities to turn to, there's no authorities to call, there's no judge to pronounce a sentence. Instead, David, empowered by the Spirit, makes a deliberate decision to ensure justice. It's not rash. He's been grieving until evening after he heard the news. But he makes the decision that this man, an Amalekite, who's likely expecting a reward, receives the measured sword of justice. And then David turns back to genuine lament. And that's what we see in scene four. David not only creates this lament, but he wants it learned by all the people of Judah. And here are six quick things we notice about this lament. First, the theme that's repeated at the beginning and the end is how the mighty have fallen. The king is dead. The crown prince is dead. The mighty ones have fallen. The glory of Israel has been slain. Next in verse 20, David warns against the news spreading to the land of Philistia. Don't let the news spread so the people there may gloat. And then in verse 21, he pronounces a curse on the ground of Mount Gilboa. May it never rain. May there be no dew. May crops never grow, even on the ground where the Lord's anointed was murdered or killed in battle by the Philistines, I should say. And then in verses 22 and 23, David somehow honors Saul and Jonathan. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. He honors their ability, their swiftness and strength in battle, their unity in life and in death. And as a result, all Israel must mourn for them. David calls on Israel to mourn for Saul. To do this, David must not have been nursing his bitterness towards Saul. David must have been pouring his heart out to God and trusting his plans to the Lord. Most of us would be tempted at that moment to long for the page to turn and for David to finally assume the throne. But David wants all of Israel to mourn for the Lord's anointed, 
who had fallen in battle. And then David ends in verse 26, speaking of Jonathan's faithful, loyal friendship. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. Jonathan's faithful, loyal friendship with David ran deep. In fact, this faithful, loyal friendship was more striking, David says, than what he had experienced even with his wives. Now, despite what some modern commentators may want to press into the text, we must acknowledge something here. David wrongly destroyed the one flesh bond and union that God had created between one man and one woman. By his pursuit of polygamy, several wives, David had had distributed and broken the one flesh union that God had intended. So there's something lacking in David's experience of the faithful, loyal friendship between a husband and a wife. I think that's part of the equation. The other part of the equation might be for us, though. We need to acknowledge that our Western individualism has diminished, I think, the depth of friendships that we can experience. The warmth of same-gender friendships, the experience of this kind of faithful, loyal, committed love for one another. This served as a warning shot for me to cultivate the friendships that God has already given me. Okay, there's the story in four scenes. The question that I wrestled with all week was, why? What do we do with this? Spirit, why did you have this here? And what are you intending for us to walk away with? Here are two things for your consideration. The first is to number your days, meaning acknowledge the brevity and the shortness of life and the certainty of death. Number your days. Here's Moses in Psalm 90. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then here's Moses' statement. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There are just two things I want to draw out from these four verses in Psalm 90. The first is that Moses wants us to understand that life is brief and it's filled with difficulty. The, year, the days may pass, may feel like they take forever, but the years go by quickly. How many times have we said, I can't believe Christmas is here already? The days are long, the years are brief. And Moses wants us to understand that our lives are filled and peppered and seasoned with difficulty. But here's the second thing Moses wants us to understand. He is clear that we tend to ignore God's anger. We tend to ignore God's wrath. We tend to ignore that there is a holy God who stands outside of creation and time. A God who created us in his image for a flourishing, joyful relationship with him, a God that we rebelled against and turned away from, a God who sent his son to reconcile us back to himself. We tend to ignore that. We tend to ignore that our rebellion has incited God's anger toward us and that God has sent a mediator to reconcile us. 
And so Moses said, number your days. Understand how quickly life will pass. Understand the certainty of death and that following death will be judgment or reward based on what we've done with Christ. Number your days. The second is to trust his heart and plans. The second application that I'd submit to you is to trust God's heart and his plans. Recognize the brevity of life, the certainty of death, and then trust God's heart and plans in the midst of it. God's heart is good. God's plans will stand. And this story, the contrast between Saul and then David and Jonathan is clear. On the one side stands Saul. God brings legitimately difficult plans to Saul, and Saul rejects and rebels and resists. And his life is filled with loneliness and despair and anger. On the other side stands David and Jonathan. God brought them difficult plans. Through no fault of his own, Jonathan would not be king. Though he's demonstrated the heart and the righteousness and the courage of a king, the ability to lead his people, Jonathan will not be king because of his father's sin. But Jonathan absorbed and accepted God's plans. He stood with God's plan for David and strengthened David's heart in the Lord. And Jonathan's life did not end on Mount Gilboa. David also has been anointed king himself and he's bullied and brutalized by Saul for years. Yet we see him show honor and demonstrate patience instead of seeking vengeance and revenge. David and Jonathan do this because they trust the good heart of the Lord and they trust that God's plans will stand. They serve a good and powerful God. And that's what we need if we're going to weather the difficult plans of God. A heart that trusts him if he brings a hard thing or won't provide a good thing, we trust him. We trust him in the way the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10, 34. He writes to the church and says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves that you had a better possession, an abiding one. And that led you to say, take it. Take my stuff. I have an abiding possession, a better one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? Let me close here. Sarah Edwards was born in New Haven, Connecticut in the year 1710. They say that she was a brilliant, beautiful woman who adored Jesus. God used her strength, her intellect, and her godliness to serve her husband and the, and the church family that he pastored. Sarah Edwards ran the family farm. She managed all their finances. She was sophisticated and made people feel at rest in their home. She was perceptive and she knew how to use her words to thoughtfully encourage and strengthen people around her. They constantly had people in their home. She gave birth to 11 children and amazingly for the time, all 11 lived to adulthood. A frequent visitor of Sarah's home remarked at her ability to win the respect of her children through her use of words. 
The evangelist George Whitfield said, a sweeter couple he had never known. But Sarah had difficult plans, or God did. Sarah weathered many difficult storms in her life, but God permitted the most crushing load late in her life. In the span of a year, she lost her father-in-law to death. She lost her, an adult daughter to death. She lost that daughter's husband to death, which orphaned two of her grandchildren. And then she lost her own husband, Jonathan. And here's what Sarah Edwards writes to her daughter just after the unexpected death of her husband. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. In Sarah Edwards, we have an example of God bringing and permitting difficult plans into the life of one of his children. And in these words that she wrote to her daughter upon the death of her husband after experiencing three other deaths that year, an example of trusting God's good heart and his powerful plans in the midst of difficult things. May God give us a heart like Sarah's. God, I pray that you would, as we prayed earlier, strengthen us through your word. Strengthen us to trust you no matter what you bring, to trust the goodness of your heart, to trust the certainty of your plans no matter what comes. May we be driven not by what we can see in this world, may we be driven by our faith in what is to come. May we build our lives on the eternal rock that is Christ. We pray these things in his name, amen. amen.